This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Tucker Smallwood from Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Trek FM. to a new episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise podcast. <laughs> I'm your host, Patrick Devlin, and I'm joined today by Brandy Jacola. Hi, Brandy. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? Oh, good. How have you been? I'm great, thanks. I'm also joined with uh, Brandon Shamatala. Hi, hey, how's it going, everybody? I just uh, broke the sound barrier. <laughs> Isn't there a demon up there? Chasing a that demon. demon. Chasing the demon in the sky. <laughs> Chasing the demon. That's we don't talk about demons on this show. Sure we don't. Never. <laughs> uh, today we have a great episode set up. We will be talking with NASA employee Tim Robertson, who has worked mission assurance on the Weather Satellite Program, as well as the Shuttle, Mars Rover, and Stardust missions. About season two, episode twenty-four, first flight. Hey Tim, how are you? I'm great. Just as long as nobody screws the pooch, we're doing great. <laughs> Yeah, let's. This is your first time on Warp Five, hey? This is. I love it. I love Enterprise. One of the things that uh, Floyd used to like to do is have a, a new guest tell how they got into Enterprise in the first place. So, well, um, I got into it like I got into the original series and Next Gen and just, and all of them. Uh, I love Star Trek. I I was watching Star Trek on September eighth, nineteen sixty six, on my living room floor, a little black or our first color TV we had just gotten. So I love Star Trek. Going back then, and every time it's been on TV, I've been addicted. Nice. Was it an RCA color TV? It definitely was an RCA color <laughs> with big tubes. <laughs> nice. Uh, when you could actually fix it on rabbit ears, it had the whole nine yards. Yeah. <laughs> but I've loved Star Trek forever. Awesome. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about First Flight. Brandy, would you like to give a recap? Yes, I would be happy to give a recap of this episode. Uh, we already talked about how it's Season 2, Episode 24. The original air date was May fourteenth, two 2003, directed by the one and only LeVar Burton, written by John Shiban, I hope I pronounced that right, and Chris Black. And it goes thusly. While preparing to investigate a possible dark matter nebula, Archer receives word from Admiral Forrest that A.G. Robinson, a friend, has died in a rock-climbing accident. 
Archer tells Trip of the accident but refuses to discuss it further and intends to fly the shuttle into the nebula by himself. He is then surprised by T'Pol insisting that the captain can't leave the ship unaccompanied and joins him. And as they head towards the unknown unknown nebula with spatial charges to excite that dark matter, T'Pol subtly gets Archer to explain his relationship to Robinson, and he recounts the story of the two of them working on the NX program. Robinson and Archer were in competition to be the test pilot for the new NX Alpha, which Robinson is awarded. During the test, the ship becomes unstable after reaching warp 2, and Robinson ignores a direct order from Forrest to drop out of warp and instead increases speed. The ship is destroyed, Robinson survives, but the Vulcans use this incident to insist that the engine does not work and the warp program should be postponed. Archer meets Trip, who insists the engine does work, that it's an intermix problem that can be solved mid-flight, and Archer and Robinson with Trip's help steal the NX Beta and perform a successful test flight at warp 2.5. They're all taken into custody, and Archer and Robinson are severely reprimanded by Forrest, but they're allowed to continue work on the project after the Vulcans grudgingly admit the engine does work. Back in the future, T'Pol and Archer, after unsuccessfully deploying most of the spatial charges, finally manage to excite that dark matter and scan the nebula, which T'Pol recommends they name after A.G. Robinson. So I have a theory on this here. I've told this, and nobody else seems to know about this one here. A.G. Robinson? Andrew Garrick Robinson? What do you think? you think they named it after him? Could be. Sounds plausible. Yeah. That's my thought. So, no big deal. Works for me. I, I think it. I think, I think this episode is just full of connections to the space program and I everything. completely agree. Yeah, it's just it's <laughs> obviously a love letter, love later, a love letter to the right stuff, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. But yeah, yes. it's it was definitely purposely done in that style, and that's why I love it so much. Okay, so Brendan, what are your thoughts on this episode? Um, you know. I gotta say that it, I, it was never really one of my favorites. I enjoyed it, and mostly because I love Keith Carradine so much. You know, he's such a great actor. But as far as the episode goes itself, I never really felt like it was that great of an episode. It was good. I didn't hate the episode or anything like that. But honestly, the second part of our discussion tonight really made me appreciate this episode a whole heck of a lot more. You know, so we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But I gotta say, I'm glad that I watched the other thing that we're going to be talking about tonight. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Tim, what'd you think of the episode? Um, I loved it uh, because of the other thing we're going to talk about the other <laughs> night. I'm very familiar with. So yeah, it it the connections and the parallels really hit me. I mean, watching it, I loved it, and uh, yeah, the whole test pilot thing, I really really enjoyed. Uh, Brandy, your thoughts on this episode? Well, uh, when I was a kid, I got to see the edited version of The Right Stuff, and my dad was fascinated. Spoilers, that's what we're talking about. Oh, I'm so We were sorry. all not saying it. <laughs> we can go back and I can start again. Nope, too late. <laughs> you, you can't edit it. a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were talking about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, um... <laughs> total ripoff of Doctor Who. I mean, phone booth, really? <laughs> so, <laughs> it should be bigger on the inside, guys. But, any, no, I'm sorry. So, when I was a kid, I got to watch that movie that we're not mentioning. That thing we're not talking about. And uh, cleverly edited, because there were some things that were inappropriate for children. <laughs> but my dad... <laughs> um, 
my dad was fascinated with aviation. He always wanted to be a pilot, but uh, they wouldn't let him because of his eyesight. And uh, so we were always watching movies with airplanes, you know, Star Trek, of course, from before I was born, etc. Anything that had any kind of flying ships in it, we were in. And so this episode actually made me think of my dad so much and made me oh, miss him a lot. And uh, I just I just can't love it enough because it's it's just so obviously beautifully an homage and yet its own thing at the same time. And I just really appreciate it. So had you seen the movie since your dad's edited version? Not until Saturday. <laughs> So you're like, whoa! No, no, I was just like, oh, oh, I see. They edited that to make us think it was part of this scene. But no, that was when they were getting a semen sample. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, okay. off we go in the wild blue yonder. Yeah. yeah, so my four-year-old walked into the room at exactly that moment. Um, <laughs> but uh, back on track. Um no, I actually love this episode for a couple reasons, and I did so before watching that movie we're not talking about because I didn't see that movie till five hours ago. So that movie's very fresh in my mind at the moment, albeit confused, but fresh in my mind. But um, I, I really loved it because I like seeing uh, Trip and Archer's friendship starting, uh, and uh, you know, I, I just I really like the actors they got in the in the episode and how they put. To Paul and Archer talking about it in, in the capsule, but mostly the big part is is watching how two test pilots are actually battling to be the first test pilot, and knowing that that could be. I mean, if you're a test pilot, you know that every mission you go on could be the last one you ever step foot on, and the you know. But they're still trying to make their name as being the one who does it, which I really mm -hmm. enjoyed. Well, spoiling that thing, like I mean, so yeah, obviously we're talking about the right stuff as well here, and. I put the movie on the other night, on Saturday night, I think it was, and I, this was the first time I'd ever seen it, and like eight minutes into the movie, I tweeted, I'm like, I know exactly why Tim wanted us to watch this movie in this episode. And I really um, appreciate that all of you have watched it. I know your first response was, it's three hours long, I don't have the yes. time. But, crying out loud, Tim. But it is, it's like I said, when I saw First Flight, I immediately thought of the right stuff. Mm -hmm. So it, it it really brought everything in for me. So mm -hmm. that's why I'm, I'm really happy you did that. So we can have a nice discussion about it later. Yeah, good. No, I'm glad this is a great topic here. Yeah. One thing that's neat is like that Happy Bottom Riding Club, because that's basically the first scene, is I'm like, oh, 602 Club. You're right? stealing my totally. thunder. <laughs> I'm sorry. But one interesting thing about the uh, Happy Bottom Riding Club is if you guys read the Titan novels... The bar on the Titan is called the Happy Bottom Riding Club. So, Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. This they just they took another that another so. uh, throwback to the, another Star Trek yeah, reference. To the, uh... Sorry, Tim, I'm taking the guests. Thunder. That's okay. Be quiet over here now. <laughs> no, man, it's fine. As long as you don't sing anything. So, Tim, as I teased before, you you've worked for NASA for how long? I've been with NASA for about 25 years um, in various. Uh, capacities. NASA, I'm a NASA contractor. I'm not a civil servant, so I didn't, I wasn't on the lockdown that just happened. Lucky um, I, Really, yeah, I got paid, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but I've start, I started off working on the shuttle program. I was working on the space shuttle main engines. Uh, I was a process engineer there. Then I, I, the thing about NASA is you're on for projects. So when the project's done, you got to find another job. 
So that's that's we jump around a lot. So I actually went from shuttle to work on a JPL, which was the best job I ever had in my life. If, if you've never been to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, I really recommend you go. They have open house every year. You go to the Mars yard, you see the rover drive around. There I worked on Spirit and Opportunity, which were the first two Mars rovers after uh, Sojourner. And then I worked on the Stardust mission, which was a comet flyby. And after those did their job, okay, Tim, now what are you going to do? <laughs> I then went to work for Goddard Space Flight Center, which is out of uh, Greenbelt, Maryland. And they do uh, weather satellites. So uh, I'm currently on what's called the JPSS, which is a Joint Polar Satellite System. In fact, we launched our last satellite uh, in November of this year up at Vandenberg, and I was up there for that. And that was a lot of fun to see because uh, I worked on the thing for seven years. So I worked on it when it was circuit cards and nothing else all the way through the complete build and, and test of the satellite. So that was a lot of fun. And it's operational right now in space. So it's the hurricane photographs you see and things like that are coming from our satellite. But so I've you loved started, Sorry, so you started in 93? Um, yeah, about 20. Yeah. It took me a while to get to NASA. And when I was a little kid, I always wanted to work for NASA. And it took me until I was about 40 before I was finally able to do it. so Yeah. But I've loved space my whole life. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents would let me stay home from school for any man space flight. And I've, I saw them all. I saw Al Shepard's first flight and all of them. So it was fun. I would actually set up a mission control on our dining room table with nice. charts and stuff like that. Reel-to-reel tape recorder recording things off the TV. Yeah, it was, cra- it was crazy. <laughs> a lot <laughs> who, of fun. Who isn't? I- who isn't interested in space? Who hasn't wanted to be an astronaut? That's I wanted it. to be an astronaut. I feel very lucky to be a child of the 60s. I mean, we experienced a lot back then, but it was fun. So you were watching the lunar landing live, right? Yep. Sure oh, did. Man. Wow. Yeah. crazy. It was, so, it was, uh, when were you born? Like, Did you watch JFK's was, speech live? I was born in 56. 56. You would have seen JFK's yep. because it's not because they're easy, but because they're yeah. hard. Yeah. Well, my dad worked for NASA for 36 years. He was one of the designers on the Saturn V F1 engine, the big ones at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So I had that ingrained into my brain. This is what we do. So I love a, this a so family much. trade to go through. <laughs> it, it's it's I love space. I mean, I just I'm a, like a little kid around a spacecraft. I really am. I I want to share a little story here because I'm into this as well. When I used to live up in uh, in Prince George, BC. And there was a there was an outdoor um, uh, telescope, right? Like a large telescope. And this was about ah man, I guess it was nine or ten years ago. Now my wife had got me a little membership at this thing, and they had like a lunar club or whatever. You'd go and check it out at nighttime. And we got to see it. We got to see the telescope, and it was set up one night. Where it was pointed at Saturn, and it was very small, but you could see the the rings. Yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, Tim, did I get the chills down my spine? And it was like a an earth-shattering moment for me to see that, knowing how far away that planet is, how large that planet is, and to see it that small in such a powerful telescope. I have never felt so tiny in my life. It was amazing. Yeah, I've got a couple telescopes, and I go to schools and do programs with the schools, and sometimes we set the scopes up at night. And watching these, you know... Eight-year-olds put their eye to the eyepiece when you've got Saturn in the in the viewfinder, and they just look at you, and then they want to see the other end of the telescope where you have the slide or the little model hanging. <laughs> and no, no, you're actually seeing that bright star over there is actually Saturn. It's it's mind blowing. It's really fun. I love seeing that 
that spark. I, I've, in fact, my, we bought my son a telescope for Christmas two years ago. We haven't been able to to get a good view of Saturn yet because the times haven't lined up where the rings are actually facing. You know, because most of the time they're actually flat to us, so you don't actually see them. So unfortunately, we haven't caught one of those views yet. So you you were lucky to catch that as a kid. NASA uh, was created by President Dwight Eisenhower in 1958 in response to the Soviet Union's launch of the first artificial satellite the previous year. President John F. Kennedy gave NASA a goal of sending a man to the moon by the end of the 60s. On July 20th, 1969, the first man walked on the moon as part of the Apollo 11 mission. Uh, In 1970, the Apollo 13 lunar landing was aborted after the oxygen tanks exploded. Uh, That's the one they made the movie out of, right? Yeah, Apollo 13. movie. It was actually called a great movie, right? Uh, yeah, it was actually very well done. But how accurate is that to what would really happen? That movie. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of technically dramatic- it was accurate, but the personalities of the astronauts were um, um, exaggerated a little bit, dramatized. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's a good <laughs> word to use. Yeah, it's Hollywood, you know. Dramatic. Um, but the interesting things, like Jim Lovell, who was the commander of that of that flight, is actually in the movie. At the end of the movie, when they get out, when they when they are walking and they meet the captain of the uh, aircraft carrier, the captain of the aircraft carrier is actually Jim Lovell. Oh, gee, imagine that somebody that's in characters in the movie, and then the actor portraying them gets Tom to Hanks actually. Tom shook his hand. Yeah, yeah. That that happened in another movie. <laughs> I think we're going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> that movie we're not talking about. <laughs> so. Yes, eventually we'll talk Apollo about it. Apollo 13? Apollo 13 was great, but did you guys see the sequel, Apollo 18? Man. So good. Tim knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. And Capricorn 1, yes. With OJ. Oh, Capricorn 1's the best. <laughs> no. I haven't seen that. Apollo 18 is like some found footage movie where yeah. they like go to the moon and there's like aliens there and stuff. Yes. I, I saw so it. So it's like the moon version of Blair Witch? <laughs> Pretty much, yes. yes. <laughs> that sounds horrendous. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, oh, so, I want to watch awesome it now. So one last last quick fact that I, that about NASA is uh, Enterprise was original was initially to be named Constitution, but fans of the TV show Star Trek ran a successful writing campaign to challenge their name to change their name. Sorry. So we have the Enterprise as the first ship because of Star Trek fans, uh, much like you, Tim. It never flew in space, though. Yeah. That's right. Yep. The Enterprise was the one that did uh, in-atmosphere testing. They drop it off a 747 and do landings with it. Yep. So that was pretty cool. And the uh, last thing I have is the space shuttle program had more than 120 successful flights. Uh, there was two disasters, but I, I don't want to go into those. I'm, let's be more cheery. Um, interestingly enough, though, I've heard that part of the problem with people not being as excited for the space program is because of how successful the shuttles were. Because they flew people so often, people were like, eh, it's like taking a bus. Right. You know, so unfortunately that kind of ruined people's love of it. Um, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Yep. Well, the Challenger, they weren't even airing it on TV until it exploded, right? Like, what they they, they did had no coverage on it because people were bored with it. And well, they, they, they did have coverage because it had Krista McAuliffe on it, the, the teacher. So yeah. classrooms around the world were watching this teacher take off. Yeah, I actually and- saw it in kindergarten. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow! You were in kindergarten. I feel so old. Yeah. I was in. I was in Spanish oh, sorry. class. Please. <laughs> sorry. No, it's uh, okay. I was I, in I mean, Spanish class when uh, the takeoff was happening, and our teacher wouldn't let us watch it. 
And then our principal came on the PA and explained what had happened. And at first I didn't understand what he was saying. He's like, there was an explosion. And I'm just like, so what happened exactly? And just the way he explained it, he was a little too, I don't know. He was trying to make it easier because we're a bunch of, you know, 12 and 13 year olds. And I didn't really understand until I got home and my mom said, oh, no, they're all dead, honey. They're all dead. And I just cried for hours and hours because I was that kid who always wanted to watch the space shuttle launch. I didn't care how many times they'd done it. I wanted to see every single one. Right. It was always thrilling to me. Yeah, I made a mistake. I was actually in pre-K. Sorry. But they did. They they flung the TV off as soon as it happened. And I mean, it, it seemed like they actually knew that was bad the moment it started to go oh, along, yeah. you know, and uh, the TV went off and that was that. Uh, interesting, uh, another fact, this is actually happier, but uh, when they brought the space shuttle to New York, when they were moving it from D.C. to New York, I forget which one they moved to the Intrepid, but uh, they did a flyover over the Intrepid when they had it on the top of the 747. I was working on the water at the time uh, on a job, and I walked, we had to walk a block actually to go find a bathroom, and I just happened to be coming out of the building with the bathroom as it flew by, so I actually got to watch it do its flyby of the Intrepid, which was pretty cool. Jealous. <laughs> People were like, get out of my way. I'm trying to walk here. Lovely Manhattan. So in order for all these things to happen, though, they needed test pilots first. Uh, what kind of qualities do you think they would look for in test pilots for, to fly spaceships? Well, the, the test pilots that they used for the Mercury and the Gemini program, um, they were, well, they, yeah, they were the... Uh, the astronauts were just test pilots. They uh, just stuck to that because that's what they wanted to fly, test pilots, because they knew the risks, they understood the risks, and they wanted the best that they can get. And so the test pilots, like they'd go to Edwards Air Force Base, like that movie shows that they would go out there to the high desert of California and pick the best and the brightest of that. Um, the And the thing is, the spacecraft that we launched were basically ICBMs. The Mercury, the first two Mercury flights, uh, Shepard and Grissom, uh, they were on the Mercury Redstone. And all they did was little suborbital shots, little 15-minute flights, and just to prove the concept that someone could just live in space and we could reenter the atmosphere. Uh, after that, John Glenn did his orbital flights, but they needed a bigger rocket. So for that, we used um, an, an Atlas rocket, a little bit bigger, but was able to reach orbit and all of the Mercury flights from uh, Shepard's, um, from, Chris, from from Sean Glenn's on, were all orbital flights. So that was the important thing. And then when we get to Mer we got to Gemini. Gemini was two astronauts, again, mostly test pilots on the entire program. And they they grabbed another 13 astronauts. They had the first seven, then they had the 13 for the Gemini. And they used the Titan II rocket because they were now launching two astronauts in space. And the reason they did the Gemini is they, the goal by Kennedy was to go to the moon. And Gemini was to, well, can we walk in space? Does a spacesuit work? Can someone actually live walking outside the spacecraft? Uh, they had to learn how to rendezvous and dock. That's the two spacecrafts going together because when we go to the moon, we're going to have the lunar module and we're going to have the command module. And they've got to be connected when we go to the moon. And then we had Saturn V. And Saturn V and all those other rockets, they had years of flights beneath them. So we knew the reliability of them. Then the Saturn V for Apollo came along, and we lost uh, Grissom, White, and Chaffee 
on the ground in Apollo 1 just during the test. And uh, after that, they had six unmanned flights of the Saturn V rocket. So, and then the first flight had two or had three astronauts on. It was just an orbital flight around the Earth. So, test pilots, you know, are very important in the program because they, like I said, they understand the risk and they know what what to do. The interesting thing is when you got to the shuttle. Um, shuttle by far is the most complex flying machine we've ever built. There were no unmanned flights. Um, the late John Young, who just recently passed away, was the commander, and Bob Crippen was the pilot. And in 1981, they climbed on board the Columbia, and they went into space, having never, that craft had never flown before. Big huevos, those guys have. I mean, this is like, in order to do that. And they flew that thing, and it, it was amazing. I, I, w- I was shocked at the thing, because my dad did a lot of work on the shuttle as well. And he said he never would have flown on it because there's too many systems, too many things can go wrong. And when the shuttle comes out of, the, out, of, out of space, it's a rock dropping. There is no second chance. You can't come up and come down. You're falling out of the sky. So, you know, the, the test pilots really were a big, big deal. You know, and that, that's basically NASA. what, uh, you know, what um, Robinson and Archer were. In first flight, they were like test test pilots for this, yes. you know. And you know it was very similar. You know they could only do it in forty minute episode, right? And you know maybe thirty minutes of the episode was devoted to this first flight storyline. But I mean, like there was a lot of similar things that were happening in the that we saw in the movie, the right stuff. So, you know, um, maybe while we're talking about this now, maybe Tim, do you want to give us a little summary of like the 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 right stuff movie a little bit because this you said is your favorite movie of all time it, is it not it is by far my favorite movie of all time because I lived uh, I didn't live in the forties but it goes back to uh, breaking the sound bar- barrier what went on at Edwards Air Force Base out in California um, in nineteen forty seven you had Chuck Yeager um, he's still alive he's a, you know I've I've met him I've seen him I've been out to Edwards Air Force Base on an anniversary and actually heard him break the sonic boom in an F four which was pretty exciting. Um, and Scott Crossfield, who was his AG, they were the competition between each other, and that's why when I when you mentioned this episode and you wanted to do, it, I was like, me, 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 let me talk about it, <laughs> because the right stuff to me is this. I mean, they they, they talked about what went on at Edwards back then um, with all the test pilots, and you see them die. You know, there's a 75 percent chance they're not going to come out of it alive. It's, you know. And then it broke into the Mercury and selecting the first seven Mercury astronauts and where the different astronauts came from. You had, you know, you had Navy, you had Marine, you had, you had Air Force pilots, you know, all going through and all the testing and uh, that they did for that. And then they got into how the spacecraft was built. And it really, it's it, it it's a it's a basically a documentary as a movie of of how we first got into space through the, through test pilots and through the entire Mercury program. It's, mm-hmm. you know, fascinating. So why but didn't the, Jaeger ever get into didn't the space Didn't have a program? college education. Jaeger and Scott Crossfield, they were, uh, nat, they were Air Force civilian pilots. So they did not have college education. And they weren't taking... So they never... Yeah, they were not taking anyone who hadn't had a college education. No. They wanted... Like they like they called uh, John Glenn clean Marines. They didn't want anybody with any baggage, possible baggage, and they wanted educated because 
NASA was selling these seven guys as the best of the best of the best. There is no one better, and our guys are better than the Russians, and we are we are the perfect. We have our guys have the right stuff. Which which is is uh, a great scene when they actually go to the bar and they they're talking to the guy and he's like, well, you don't want the best pilots. He's like, we want the best pilots we can get because he was talking about well, it's hard to get them uh, clearances and and all that other right. stuff that they had to go through. Um, I did like the scene with Jaeger early on too, when he's like, "Well, how much money do you have?" And he's like, "Ah, the Air Force is already paying me. I'll just go." You know, he like nonchalantly was like, "Cool, I'll, I'll fly this new plane and hope it breaks the sound barrier." Yeah, the X one, yeah. You know, right after his, a, a, a presumably a buddy of his, you know, early on, just before that, the movie crashes and, and dies. I mean, but right. that's that's a real fact of their life. That that's true, and and the similarities between the right stuff, and and first flight. I mean, like I said, I see I see I see Archer as Jaeger, and I and I see Ag as as the Crossfield, and I mean, Jaeger would go up and go one point three Mach. Crossfield would go up two weeks later and go one point five, and they just kept upping each other. It was a friendly competition. I mean, it really was, and I even think that you know Jaeger had his flight engineer. Jack Ridley, uh, he would always ask for a stick of gum before we'd go up because he didn't. He figured he wouldn't die if he owed him something, so we'd always always borrow a stick of gum. Well, Jack Ridley, he was a good old boy from the South. Kind of reminds me of another flight engineer from the South. Trip. He he is he is you know Jack Ridley to uh, in me in me to Archer. So. The two of them work together, and you also mentioned, you know, Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding Club, the six hundred two club, which you mentioned. <laughs> I saw that similarity as well. And yes, in the movie, the guy behind the bar in Pancho's was Chuck Yeager. <laughs> and I would just like to make this connection that means absolutely nothing, but uh, Pancho Barnes, who owned the bar, my maiden name is Barnes, and so I am sure that somewhere I'm related to her. I don't know where. But I'll bet you somewhere there's a connection. Not a whole well, lot of Barneses yeah, she, out there. That exists. She now. was a heck of a te- she was a heck of a pilot herself too. Yep. She had all sorts of flight records. Yeah. Yeah. I liked her a lot. So, Brandon, what were your favorite parts of the right stuff that tied back to first flight? Um, I thought it was interesting. Like some of the scenes that I thought were interesting was uh, I, I don't remember all the characters' names. I am bad with names, but. Um, there was the one character who was blowing the um, the water, and he was so cocky. He's like, oh, I can do better than everybody. And then when he gave up on blowing that bubble in the water, the other two guys were still going. Yeah, that was Cooper. That was Gordon Cooper. Yeah. Cooper, yeah. Uh, so I liked watching that friendly banter between them. And, you know, it was it was interesting watching these guys and learning a bit about them and watching them go through this training and watching some of them, you know, you, it looks silly, some of these tests that they had to go through, you know, like the shaking chairs and stuff. And and uh, it was neat how they were, like, cutting back and forth between, like, news-style footage, which is real footage, and then some of it was just black-and-white footage of the actors. And, you know, it, the, like, the movie was really well done, and there was lots of great things in it. I didn't have time to watch the whole thing in one sitting. Like, I did have to watch it in three sittings because I, wa- I watched an hour on Saturday night, I watched an hour and a 15 minutes on Sunday morning, and then 45 minutes on Sunday night just because I just don't have time, right? But um, I'm really glad that I got it in because this is a movie that I've always wanted to watch because 
I've always been interested in space travel. And yeah, like I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. And, you know, recently my daughter Aubrey's seven and, and, you know, just a few months ago, um, Tim, I'm sure you know this movie. Have you guys heard of from, uh, for all mankind? Tim knows this movie. It's a, it's an amazing documentary, but the way that it's filmed is they're telling the story of the Mercury and Apollo missions but they just take a small sample of the NASA footage from each of the missions to generally progress them till they get to the moon. So while they're launching, they're showing the Mercury missions and stuff, and while they're orbiting the Earth, they show uh, the... I don't know all the names of them, but what what were the next ones? Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. So they had the Gemini ones, and then as they were progressing towards the moon, they were going through all of the different missions and whatnot, and until they got to the moon with, you know, Apollo 11. And and it was a really neat film, because you just got a little bit of the feel for what these guys did for each of the different missions and how they would progress and how the technology advanced and stuff. And you know, and I don't, I'm really glad that I watched this movie because it was really cool. And it, again, it did really help me appreciate the uh, the episode a bit more, quite a bit more, actually. Great. Yeah, and and when when it first came up, I, I said, "Oh, three hours," and I got a lot to do this weekend. And I thought, "Man, I don't know how I'm going to fit this in." So today, I actually ran home from work and threw it on, and I'm very glad I did. Not just for the sake of this discussion, but just to see that movie and to see how it it it, it worked out and then how well. First Flight really did tie back to that movie because it's clear that, that they wrote that with that movie in mind. It wasn't an accident. It's not, we're not drawing parallels, you know, because we want to. It's because they're there. You know, we're not making it up. Um, one of the things I found interesting was, and I don't know how factual it is, but originally they wanted to use, like, circus entertainers to, to be test yeah. pilots for, for the, yeah. the, the, because they didn't really want pilots. That was the thing. They just wanted someone to sit in a capsule and the capsule was going to do all the work for them. Yeah. The first two flights, they didn't do anything. The astronauts, it was just only 15 minute flights. So they just up and down and they were just passengers. Right. And then, and they, which was a problem for them because they're test pilots and they wanted control. Right. It, it, they must be control freaks to have that kind of job. You, you have to. And meanwhile, they're trying to, to, to get Eisenhower to, to hire, you know, people walking on tight ropes and, and all kinds of things, which, I thought was ridiculous until I thought about it. Their reasoning for it was, well, they're, they're easily, they'll easily just listen to whatever we say, sit down and, and go and come back and we won't worry about it. Um, so I found that to be interesting. That's not actually in first flight, but I just found that interesting from the, the movie, the right stuff. And yeah, there was a character in that scene, the German guy, that's actually, it's supposed to be Warner von Braun, who was the designer of most of our rockets here. In the United States, he designed the, the German V2 rocket, which a lot of our rockets are based upon, that whole propulsion system. Right, right. Yeah, well, I, I like that line, too. Our Germans are better than their Germans. That was a cool line. <laughs> oh, my God. I got a kick out they of were. They, they, no, they, they absolutely were. But, but I love the line, how they just threw it in there. Yeah. And uh, and then, like, like you know, you, you see throughout the whole thing, they're, they're all kind of in a competition with each other right to the very end. And... Uh, what was it? Cooper was going on about how he's he's got a twenty five thousand dollar a year job and he gets free lunch and and he hasn't even gone out of space yet, you know. And uh, and by the end we do yeah, see. Yeah, they he notice goes, that, you know. Yeah, which is yeah, he cool. actually fell asleep on the launch pad too. They showed that in the movie that yeah he was, he out was cold. up on top and he his his heart rate never got up above seventy four beats a minute during launch. It was 
The guy was a steely-eyed missile man. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine that thought process because if I get in a plane and it's not moving, I'm not happy. So to be a test pilot is insanity to me, but you yeah. know, I, I don't like planes. So, Tim, I had one question about the movie that, that I wanted to make sure we brought up that I thought was really interesting that I didn't understand the significance of, and that was with Gus Grissom. Now, mm-hmm. so Gus Grissom came down... And when they landed in the water, they were trying to pull his uh, shuttle out, his capsule out, and something happened that the explosive bolts went off, he evacuated the ship, and they lost this shuttle, uh, this capsule, because it got filled with water. And right. they made this a big event. Like, the president didn't come out and visit him. They just they, they brushed it off like it was this catastrophe. They had this, this huge investigation of it. And I, I read online afterwards, because I'm like, why was this such a big deal? Because so, so the next person that went up and came down, when they got his capsule onto the boat, he purposely blew the bolts once he got onto the ship to show that making that action would cause your hand to be bruised, right. and Grissom did not have that bruising on his hand. Therefore, he couldn't have... Uh, blown the blown the hatch, but why was that such a big deal? Was it simply because they lost the capsule? The NASA was selling these guys as the best, and to think one of them can make a mistake by panicking and blowing the hatch to get his butt out of the spacecraft—that's what—that's how—that's how it was reported that that's how he was. And Gus Grissom didn't do that. I mean, actually, the the Liberty Bell 7 spacecraft was actually salvaged, uh, I believe, in the 80s. 1999, and they, actually. I think it was. Was it Yeah, it yeah. was the 90s. And, okay. And they did a full inspection of the spacecraft, and in order to blow the hatch, there's a handle you have to turn and you have to pull. And it takes a lot of force to do that. Well, the handle was turned in the right location because that's what the procedure called for after you land. You prep to blow the hatch, but it was not pulled. So, and what they what they found when they did investigation on the on the Liberty Bell, they found that the impact when it hit the ocean somehow jarred the door and caused it to go out of alignment a little bit and that caused the explosive bolts somehow to it to to go off. So, no, he yeah, but I I remember the whole world up about Gus, but you go to Merc- you go to the Gemini program. He was one of the first two astronauts in the, in the Gemini spacecraft. So yeah, it didn't, and and he was going to be in the first Apollo. Because yeah, yeah. the movie really portrayed it like he was having a panic attack. Oh, and I hate that. It makes me so angry because the man had already passed away and he had no way to defend himself, and he's the only person. That's what was going on. Yeah, he was the only person that knew what happened. He was the only person in that capsule. And to portray him in that way, I really disagree with that because there is nothing in his character up to that point to show that he would have in any way that kind of panicky reaction for no apparent reason. And it infuriates me. It's the only part of the movie that I hate. It's just not fair. I didn't like it. Well, actually learning that, what what you just said, Brandon, about... um that the, the astronaut got on the deck of the ship and purposely blew the bolts to show the bruising, that actually, now that scene after that bothers me even more because all the astronauts are sitting around saying that he did panic. And they, you know, mm-hmm. they, there's a scene where they're talking amongst each other. That's movie. Yeah, that's, that's no, no, dramatic that's, license. That's, that's Hollywood. No, no, I understand, but now that scene actually bothers me more than the fact that they portrayed him as losing it. 
Yeah. Because oh, obviously those those um, astronauts didn't feel that way. Otherwise, the guy wouldn't have blown the hatch on purpose, you know. So, so that actually bothers me more than the fact that they showed him panicking. Um, because at that point, they hadn't recovered the, the capsule yet. They hadn't figured out he didn't panic. So it's Hollywood. I, I get it. But See, and I interpreted that scene as they were just like, they couldn't fathom that this that that this product wouldn't work properly. So they like they they could only believe that. And it wasn't that they didn't believe him. It's just that they didn't believe the situation almost. I don't know if I'm worried. They had never way. had one blow in test. Yeah. 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 So they dropped it 100 feet on the concrete. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my, I, yeah. my cell phone falls from 14. It survived. That doesn't mean I want well, to do we it. We never had a shuttle uh, fall apart coming back to the Earth because it was hit with ice either. So mm. in, in, the, in the world I work in, you plan for the unplanned events. Like and that's, having to pee you in can't case predict. you're... In case you're on the launch pad for too long. <laughs> yeah, for hours yeah, on like, end. Like, like Al Shepard had the pee in his... <laughs> Which now... But she actually did. And now those suits come that way, right? Like, I mean, that's part yeah, of the suit uh, now. Well, yeah. Astro- yeah, NASA has diapers, yes. Yeah. I, I felt bad because uh, I read that Alan Shepard got grounded later because of Meniere's disease. <laughs> and I have Meniere's disease, so I understand that. But it's just like, man... You know, but he he did fly in Apollo, Apollo yeah. fourteen. He, he walked on the moon and actually brought a nine iron and <laughs> knocked the golf ball miles and miles. Yeah, kind of like. Oh yeah, that. the only hey. man to play golf in space, right? Or on the moon? Yes, mm-hmm. man to play golf yes. on the moon. Good for um, him. Interesting about yep. the diapers. Uh, I don't know. I, I watched the show The Big Bang Theory, and one of their characters went went to space, and they actually make a comment about. Um, Massimino, who's an actual astronaut, says to him, "You peed in your suit," and then. Uh, Wallowitz goes, you're supposed to. He goes, not during the fitting. You know, so it's, it's, it's funny because they're talking about how Wallowitz doesn't have the right stuff. And they just keep using the term the right stuff, yeah. which didn't make much sense to me until four seconds ago when I realized that they were talking about that movie. So That's funny. Yeah, the, the movie is based upon a book by Tom Wolfe. If, if you have a lot of time. You might want to oh, pick man. that book if up. If that and thing read it, was a three-hour really... movie, I can only imagine how uh, big the yeah, book is. A... He he had no interest in adapting that for a movie, and so they hired um, was it Philip Kaufman? Am I imagining mm-hmm. things? Uh, no, that's right. Yeah, and uh, I Tom Wolfe reportedly hated the movie, not just disliked it; he hated it. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. He was not happy with the dramatic license that they took with the story. No, but of course they did. Because that's Hollywood. Yep, sure enough is. So I'm guessing that a lot of the interactions were probably about 50% fact and 50% dramatic license. So Okay, hold on a second. Are you telling me Hollywood's not reliable? You're telling me I can't believe Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter is is not real? Brandon. Really, that's where we go? Brandon, (laughs) we need to have a talk right now. And honey, I'm so sorry to be the one to break this to you, but... He was a Bigfoot hunter. It's just, yeah, he was yeah, exactly. a Bigfoot hunter. That whole vampire thing, vampires aren't real, but Bigfoot is. What? No, no, vampires aren't real. Bigfoot, totally real. No, I've got a low-budget Canadian film called Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter as well. <laughs> they well, really need that? be a vampire hunter. The, the quote of the thing is, may the power of Christ impale you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. And we are totally That's off the rails. Cool. Yeah, 
Well, that's partially my fault. I, I'm good at going down tangent lane. <laughs> oh, no, this one's all on Brandon with vampire hunting. Brandon! Sorry. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> so, Tim, do you have any final thoughts on, on this movie and the episode? Like I said, it's it's one of my favorite uh, Enterprise episodes because of its tie into the right stuff. Uh, everything about it was good, even to Paul. Even to Paul. <laughs> even to Paul. I liked. I liked to Paul in this episode. I thought I she was too. really interesting. I did too. You know, yeah. but I have one question about this. Okay, so now let's tie this back to Enterprise for a second here. The one thing I don't understand about Enterprise is why. Did they give so much power and influence to the Vulcans? I just don't understand that. Yes, they had more experience, but even in this episode here, like, why did they take such a backseat to them and say, look, if we do this now, we're not going to get into space for 10 years because they want 10 years of tests. And they're like, Starfleet said so. Well, I feel like it all goes back to uh, First Contact. as Not the movie. Sort of. But, you know, that instance where the Vulcans first land on Earth. It was in the aftermath of a third world war, a nuclear war. Humanity was scattered at best. And the Vulcans basically helped them not only with starting their warp program, but also kind of helped them figure themselves out so that they could come together and they could form an organization like Starfleet. Because can you imagine the entire world doing that with the world we have now? Because I can't. I can't imagine the entire world just dropping all their differences and finally deciding, yes, let's work together. Let's achieve this thing. And so I think that in those early days, yes, they needed the guidance of the Vulcans because they weren't really sure what they were doing yet. But this, however many decades later, kind of like, yeah, let's let's just do this already. Because it's true what Robinson says is that you've got to take risks because you can't always play it safe, especially when you're doing something you've never done before. You cannot play it safe because if the test pilots had played it safe if nasa had played it safe we probably wouldn't be in space Mm -mm. at all well the scene when um robinson and archer steal the beta right and the uh admiral uh forrest is on the line and he's like freaking out and whatnot and the vulcans come and he's like oh that's just great like what are the vulcans gonna do like frown at him or what like (laughs) they don't frown they don't have emotion Oh, they really? frown. Have you seen they Saval? <laughs> Saval? Saval's face is just a frown. It's not called frowning when it's Vulcan. It's just their face. It's, it's, a, that, it's a that's just my face. Stern expression. Just my I don't face. know. Well, I I, I <laughs> think it's because the Vulcans were considered the experts, and so they had a lot of say in how the program progressed. I think and, that's it. Yeah, and that's why uh, they were beholden to them, basically. So they basically had to have proof of concept to get those guys to finally say, okay, yeah, this works. Let's go on to the next point. Yeah, they were the gatekeeper, I think, for the yeah for the whole 
flight, the whole warp program. Yeah, that's how I feel. And they and that's the thing. They they only I'm suddenly reminded of these lines from Forbidden Planet for some reason. They they were the ones who decided what information and knowledge that they would parse out and what was acceptable to give to the humans at that particular time. And that's why it took them so long to get there. Um, but having to work for it probably also was a good thing because if you just hand somebody uh, a Warp 5 engine and they go out into space, but they haven't had the experience of working on it, testing it, making sure it works, developing the NX-01 and all of those things, I don't know if they would have been as ready or prepared for what was really out there. So in a way, I understand why the Vulcans did what they did. Uh, on the other hand, they did drag it out too long. Well, exactly. Like, I wouldn't expect the Vulcans to be like, here's your Warp 5 technology, let's get going. But they are the ones that are always touting non-interference. And by holding them back, that's interfering with the natural progression of humanity. The natural progression of humanity is, let's get her done. Yeah, you know? that, that's what and, humans do. We've got yeah, an idea, they, let's make it work now. Now, 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 they, now, now. If they blew up the first one, they would have been right up back on the second one. Maybe mm -hmm. with different pilots, but they'd be back up on the second one. Well, they right. did blow up the first one. They instead, blew up the other. No, no, but but instead, <laughs> under the the Vulcans, they were like, all right, program's closed, and we're not fighting it. What do you yeah. mean we're not fighting it? Of course we're fighting it. I mean, I, I get I get what Brandon's saying, because it, it seems a little ridiculous to, to be that beholden to them, to, to just, oh, they said we should probably wait, so we're going to well, wait. Whose fault is that, though? No, it's definitely the humans, the Starfleets mm -hmm. in that case. But it's just, it's just a, I don't know. It's a way to make us not like the Vulcans more at that moment. So, well, it's it, uh, the it did thing, its job. That's the thing that I like about Enterprise is that it shows the Vulcans in a much different light than what we've seen from the Vulcans up until this point. Because all we've seen really are the Vulcans of the future. You know, after the Federation has been formed and all of these things, and so we're not used to having the Vulcans be jerks. So. You know, gruff yeah. sometimes, annoying definitely, but not jerks. And these Vulcans are jerks. I do have to say, I was watching the episode with my husband, and he really appreciated the visitor badges that the Vulcans were wearing when they were <laughs> at I Starfleet. I gotta now watch it again. Yeah, he's well. He's a he's a federal government employee, and so he notices these sort of things. He's like, say, that was my really nice is. detail. Nice <laughs> yeah. detail. Thanks for giving him visitors badges. Well done. I'm like, that's really? Right. That's what you took her this? No, I I thought I just thought thank you. I never noticed that. So thanks, babe. So so there is one line of this whole show that every time I hear it makes me go, oh come on, and it's when Ag says to um, Archer. You're not when you're out in deep space. You're not gonna be able to call back to the Vulcans unless, of course, you bring one. <laughs> you're like, come on, waka waka. It's so terrible. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to be fair, Archer didn't bring to Paul. He was given to I, Paul I in order to, to take her. So I said he's wrong. He doesn't bring her until season three. That's when yeah. he decides that she can stay. Yeah. Well, she decides she wants to be there too. It's up to yes. her too. But he, but oh. then she goes to him and says, "I've resigned my commission. I want to stay here if you'll allow it." And he says yes. But up until that point, he, neither one of them had a choice. They, she was there because she was told to be, and she, he, and because he was told she had to be. Yep. Mm -hmm. But oh, it's such a oh, oh. <laughs> they were trying so hard to do foreshadowing, and it failed. Yeah. <laughs> a little Horribly. fan service. Come on, give them that. Like, 
Like, oh, like right. while he's telling the story to her, he couldn't have left that line out. Yeah. Well, like it was really as coherent as the flashbacks that we saw. Yeah. <laughs> no, Archer telling that story would not have gone like that. <laughs> no, and, and and if I'm telling that story, I won that fight. I mean, why would you even let that end in a draw? Yeah. <laughs> why would you? You were getting lumped up, man. That's Nah, it would have been one hit, I won. End of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's you, Patrick. I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Got someone fooled. <laughs> <laughs> You're not <with> Jonathan Archer. <laughs> well, he's just too honorable to lie about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's in Starfleet. They don't lie. Yeah, True. neither do the Vulcans. Yeah. So, Brandon, what are your final thoughts? Oh, just that. I just wanted to you talk about the Vulcans. That was it for my final thoughts here. So, Brandy, what are your final <laughs> thoughts? Anything additional you want to add? Uh, I don't think that there's anything I have to add that I haven't already said. I love this episode. I love Enterprise in general. I have always been fascinated by flight of any kind, and I will continue to be until I shuffle off this mortal coil. So I appreciated this episode so much being a love letter to the right stuff. I really like that. Um, I guess my final thoughts are just that I'm really glad that I got to watch the right stuff. It's not something I even knew existed, actually. It was oh, really? Made, yeah, well, it was made in 1983. I was one when that movie came out. Um, oh, my God. I don't, I don't typically peruse the section of movies. <laughs> I, don't, I don't typically peruse the section of movies that existed when I couldn't talk. So um, You're missing I out. Really, I, really, I, I am, but people have to tell me. And, and We had talkies when I was growing up. <laughs> well, this is two weeks in a row, Patrick, that you got to talk about two wonderful movies. Because last week we just talked about The Wages of Fear, which is better than this. Right, right, Brandy? Wages of Fear is better than this one? Don't make me come over there, Brandon. Well, that was the other issue, is I was like, oh man, is this going to be another one of those? No. And this one's like three hours. The last one took three hours to get through the first hour. This is not going to go well. I'm really happy the three of you got watched it and really enjoyed it. It really warms my heart. It really does. No, it was a great movie. And like I said, I mean, unfortunately, I didn't know it existed because I was so young when it came out. And uh, it's uh, whatever. But now that I got to see it, it's probably something I will watch again just to see the things that I miss. Because, you know, I have two kids and they don't know how to stay out of the room and leave you alone long enough for you to watch a 10-minute TV show, let alone a three-hour movie. So uh, I'll probably be watching it again soon, relatively soon. Um, What's interesting is I mean, preparation I've... for this. I didn't watch it. <laughs> I don't <laughs> need to. I've probably it seen it thirty yeah. times in my life, so it's just like yeah. it's. Yeah, well, I, you know, I didn't have to watch First Flight. I mean, I did because I like it, but I didn't have to. But I used all that time that I would have using to watch the right stuff, and I'm glad I did because mm-hmm. there was a point where I was gonna like just fast forward, like try and hit key points and be able to talk about those. But uh, I sat down. I made sure I watched the whole thing and. And it didn't even feel like it was three hours when it was over. Yeah, know? no, the, it definitely, the first hour when I watched, it went really quickly. I was just getting very tired on the night there because it was, it was like 11 o'clock at that point. And yeah. Like, I knew I couldn't finish it. But but yeah, no. for Brandy and Patrick, I'd recommend you check out that For All Mankind. It's only like 80 minutes long. Uh, it's just a short documentary, but it's it's a really neat film. 
I will find it. For all mankind, excellent. Well, uh, before we get uh, Tim's information here, I guess we'll let, let the listeners know here what our next couple of episodes are coming up here. We're going to try and let you guys know what we're going to be talking about for the next couple. So, uh, next week's episode, we're going to be wrapping up our Season 3 retrospective. So, if you want to watch the episodes ahead of time, we'll be covering E Squared, The Council, Countdown, and Zero Hour. So, we'll be finishing that up. And then the week after that, Brandy's going to lead us in a wonderful discussion on the most underrated crew member of the ship. Who's that, Brandy? Porthos! Oh, Yeah! I love so, me some Porthos! I love that beagle so much. <laughs> Excellent. So those are the next couple episodes that we've got coming for you guys here. So, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Why don't you let everybody know where they can find you and tell them about your podcast. Sure. Um, you can find me in the Babel Conference. I'm always hanging around there. Um, I also do a podcast. Um, I have a, I've been a member of an organization called the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Since the 1970s, I run their actual training program that teaches, teaches observers how to use their telescope. And the podcast is called The Observer's Notebook, where I talk to different section leaders in the organization and what's going on in the sky. Like 2018 is going to be an incredible year for Mars. It's going to be the closest it's been in many, many years. So a lot of people are getting prepped up for that. Plus, there's going to be some very bright comets in the sky this year as well. So I have a variety of podcasts on that. Again, that's The Observer's Notebook. And I'm on Twitter at, at @TimRobertson56. It's been fun talking about First Flight and the right stuff today, but that isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. But aside from a title, it was just getting people used to the idea that Star Trek did not have to be Kirk, Spock, McCoy, either watching them get older or recast. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a zero-sum binary choice here. That there was some other way you could go with the franchise, that the franchise was more than these guys. The franchise was this universe. Earl Grey. Is is it worth being hit with pain sticks in the Icarus Factor? <laughs> Dang it. No. Oh, I forgot about that one. <laughs> I know, I was going to choose it, and I thought, you know, Richard's probably going to, you know, take up that mm-hmm. warm one. I Come forgot on, what's better about than that, that one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I would choose that one, but that's not what I have on my list. <laughs> okay. I completely forgot about that episode. Oh, my gosh. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's, it's weird that they don't have a lot of sunglasses. Like, wouldn't sunglasses be huge there? Oh, man. I just thought of something. Is Iris Stephen Bear from the Mirror Universe? Checks out. Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. Is the choice universally impossible, that something that everyone would struggle with, or is it impossible because it's being struggled with by that particular character? So this, I think, and this choice is mm. particularly difficult for Sarek because he's an unusual Vulcan. It wouldn't be difficult for any other Vulcan. Yeah, that's would, an interesting point. And the other Vulcan for, basically says, you're acting like a human. Here, yeah. You know, yeah. But then he married He married a human, he did, yeah. and he had a human, half-human son, yeah. and he adopted, and he adopted a, human. a human. So he's obviously so, got some... <laughs> yeah, and so he's, he's in, unusual in, that in respect, Star yeah. Trek, is there any other choice which is impossible mm-hmm. because of that individual rather, rather than, than impossible because it's like a universally seen impossible yeah. choice? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
So check out all these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And you might sometimes find us at the Happy Bottom Riding Club. Right, guys? <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in the Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 from our website or grab the RSS link so you can listen while you're giving samples. <laughs> Ew. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, or maybe we wouldn't like to hear your thoughts on the show, but there are many ways for you to do that. And the best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up, just like Cooper giving a sample. If you'd like to send us email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So Patrick, when you are not fending off interrupting children, where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, they can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm always there hanging out, talking with people. You can also find me on Twitter, which I'm going to start using more because I just haven't used it enough, at MagicDrop5, uh, one word, the five is a number. And I'm also, I co-host the show, The Briar Patch, which releases uh, twice a month instead of every week like this show. But you can find me there as well. So, Brendan, when you're not trying to get yourself to the moon or orbiting Earth, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, at Brandon Matella. You can find me on the Babel Conference. And you can find me here on the network hosting The Edge, which is our Star Trek Discovery podcast. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network uh, with a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And you can, uh, yeah, check us out over there. It's a lot of fun. And uh, Brandy, where can people find you when you're not trying to uh, do stuff? <laughs> Really? Really? That's what you got? I'm tired. It's wow. ten fifty one right now. Mm, Where can people find you when you're not trying to break the sound barrier? <laughs> there we go. That's much better. You can find me on Twitter at brandywine12. That's brandy with an I, number twelve. And I'm also always lurking in the Babel Conference and sometimes posting on other people's posts. You can also find me on Live from the Edge, which is our live reaction show that we do every Monday after a new episode of Discovery Drops. I do that with the lovely Bruce Gibson. And I also have a podcast with my husband, Dave, called The Dark Corner Podcast, which you can find on strangeanddeadly.com, where we look at life and pop culture through a darker lens. It is a bit sweary. Well, we got one comment here that we're going to read from our last episode, episode uh, 129. Uh, no, episode 130, sorry, uh, which was the first episode with you guys. And that was our favorite episodes. Justin Ozer from Earl Grey says, Great episodes, and welcome to Patrick and Brandy as the new co-hosts. Here are my favorite with my favorite from each season with my all-time favorite Enterprise episode listed with a star. Season 1 is Dear Doctor, Season 2 is Dead Stop, Season 3 is North Star, and Season 4 is Kirshara, with that being 
his uh, Justin's favorite episode of Enterprise. So thanks, Justin, very much for submitting your list. And if you guys want to, you know, want to comment and let us know, put a, put a comment in the Babel Conference and we'll read it for you. If you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. To get all the details, perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find those details at patreon.com slash trekfm which is actually how i got involved in the network at first i became the associate producer for metatrex mm-hmm. and we've got some great associate producers here on warp 5 we're gonna give a big high five and a big uh sound barrier booming to the following wonderful people uh we got norman c lau floyd dorsey mike morrison tim cooper justin oser Mark Flessa and Joe Saltzman. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show as well as the network. Keep coming. Boom on. Sonic Boom. We don't have a, a listening post in the bottom of this sanctuary. Oh, whoops. Sorry. Guess we did. Uh. Oh, I didn't know it was there with all the people. That were... <laughs> Oops. Oops. Yeah. How dare you keep looking? This is your fault. Flat out liars. Anyway. <laughs>